Amen. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the words of this song. That you did not stay in that grave, but that you rose. And I pray that in our time together, as we look at your word, that you open our eyes, open our ears to what you would have. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> Guys, thank you for leading us. And you're right, that was country. And I, I don't think you need to apologize for that. <laughs> well, today we begin a new series on the book of James. Uh, and so over the next several weeks, we are going to look through the book just little by little. We're going to walk through this book. It's one of my favorite books. Next week, we start in chapter one. But this morning, what I want to do is set some context. We're going to look at James the person. More specifically, we're going to look at a moment in James' life that changed everything for him. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at something that will serve as our foundation for us as we look at James over the next coming weeks. Now, I don't know if you can see this. Do you know what this is? There you go. It's actually the hinge to our door. We actually need this hinge. I took it off last night. And my wife was saying, what are you doing? Um, this is a hinge. Now, if I were to come to your house and remove all of these off of your front door, what would, hap- what would happen? It would fall over. It would be a useless door. You would no longer have a door. You would have an opening and a piece of wood, right? This is a, an important, valuable piece to your door. Well, today, we're going to talk about the hinge of the book of James, We're going to come back to this a lot. We're going to talk about the hinge, not only for the book of James, but for the person of James. And not only for that, we're going to talk about the very hinge of our faith as a whole. Webster's Dictionary defines hinge when it's used as a verb as to be contingent on a single point or object. And this morning, we're going to talk about that single object on which everything hinges, everything hangs. Um, All right, are we ready? You would expect, since we're starting James, that I would ask you to open to James. You would be wrong. Let's open to 1 Corinthians this morning. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And while you're getting there, uh, Paul is in the process of making a case to the church in Corinth. He's talking to this church. He's about to, to set out a case, but before he does, he lays out a foundation for them. He lays out a foundation for them. He gives them a hinge. And let's start in verse 1 of chapter 15. It says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand. He stops and he says, Before we go any further, remember the gospel that I've told you about. Remember the good news that I've told you about because everything hinges on this, and it's on this you stand. And then he continues Not only that, but in verse 2, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, we need to unpack that a little bit. Um, What's that about? Believed in vain. I I thought that if we believe that we are saved, right? But here, Paul's saying, unless we believe in vain. What is happening? Is this possible? Is that true for us today? Well, um, Paul, fortunately for us, just a little bit later, will unpack what he means by this. 
Uh, He's going to tell us what he means when he says vain. So mark this. We're coming back to it. And by the way, uh, I should have done this earlier. Side note. We, um, if you're here and you don't have a Bible, uh, I would love to have the opportunity to give you one. We have several here, and if you're here and you don't have a Bible, uh, it is our gift to you. We'd love to give you. We have several more of these. We'd love to give this to you as our gift. We have some very generous people that would give to see this possible. So please, come find me. Uh, It's our gift to you. Um, Let's continue on in our passage. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as one of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He says, I'm about to tell you the first importance. This is not an add-on. This is not one of the things I need you to hear. This is not just one of the things I need you to believe. This is it. There is nothing more crucial, pivotal, important than this. He says, this is of first importance. And what was it? That Christ died, buried, and rose again. That Christ died. And this is a literal death. Literal death. Not a fake death. He didn't pass out for three days. This was not a faux death. This was a real, literal death. Christ died an actual death. More than that, he was buried. They checked for vitals. They prepared him for burial. For three days, he laid lifeless in a tomb. For three days, his body did not move, lifeless. It was an actual death, an actual burial, and more than that, an actual resurrection. And again, this is not a spiritual resurrection. This is, not, this is a bodily resurrection, tangible, touchable, blood in veins, breath in lungs. It is a, an actual resurrection that Jesus died an actual death, was buried in, a, in an actual literal tomb, and that he rose, literally rose. And that is the foundation. Church, that is our hinge this morning. Let's keep going. Verse 5, and he, that's Jesus, appeared to Cephas, and Cephas is a lovely name for Peter. I would have chosen Peter as well. Um, But he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some had fallen asleep. And by the way, by most of whom were still alive, Paul is talking about most of the people who were still alive at the time he was writing the letter. This wasn't a uh, Jesus appeared to a mixed company of both dead people and living people. Most of them were alive, but this wasn't a zombie kind of moment. This was, Paul was saying, there were 500 people who witnessed Jesus raised from the dead. More than that. Most of those people who saw him raised from the dead, you can go ask them about it. They're here. Most of them are still alive, and you can go ask them about it. These, were, these men were living, breathing witnesses of Christ's resurrection. And then in verse 7, he says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, 
as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This passage, we are introduced to James, the same James that, will, uh, that wrote the letter that we are about to look at. This is James, the brother of Jesus, and we read that he has a, an encounter with his older brother. Um, James, don't rush past this, believed his brother to be dead. Not only that, he saw him killed. He witnessed him executed. He saw it. You have to just take that in as a brother seeing your older brother go through that. He saw that. On a human level, this would have been a moment of agony for this family. And then in this moment, something happens that changes James' life forever. What do we know about James prior to this moment? Well, we know that James did not grow up a believer in Jesus. In John 7, 5, it says, For not even his brothers believed in him. This is talking about Jesus, about his brothers, James being one of them. Not even his brothers believed in him. We know um, that James, for whatever reason, could not grasp the fact that his older brother was the son of God. Anyone have brothers? It's not that far-fetched, right? It's not that far-fetched to think that James would struggle with this one. I mean, think of it, James saying, God, would you really use my family to bring the Savior of the world? Like, would you really pick us? Like, could my older brother really be the one that has been prophesied for? Of course, James struggles with this. Um, James, growing up, was not a believer, but something happened that forever changed his life. And that was he saw Jesus resurrected. He saw Jesus resurrected and it changed him completely. Let's look at James after this moment. Historically, it is believed and understood that the moment we just read was the moment of James' conversion. It's kind of a cool thing, isn't it? Historically, in church history, this is what has been passed to us, that this was the moment that James became a believer in Jesus. Not only historically through church history, but we have historians that have written about this, that this was the moment, this was the first sign that James had become a believer. It changed him. And let's look at James after this moment. He became a believer. He became the leader pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Now, this church was not just any other church. This was the mothership church for the ancient world. This was the church that all churches looked to for leadership direction. This was the church that in Acts, it all spread out from. It was this church. And James becomes the pastor of this church. Paul in Galatians refers to James as a pillar of the faith. Paul calls you that. That's pretty cool. A pillar of the faith in Galatians. Uh, As the leader of the church in Jerusalem, we know that Paul would often come to Jerusalem to talk to James because James was, in essence, the spiritual leadership over Paul because of his position as pastor in the church of Jerusalem. This man, his life was changed radically. His life was changed radically. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the letter he wrote, which is deeply practical. Uh, It's one of my 
favorite books of the Bible. It has so much wisdom for us. Um, But this book, this wisdom, James, all of it is the result of one thing, and that is he saw Jesus resurrected. All of it is because he saw Jesus resurrected. He gave his entire life to the gospel, not only his life. We know that James was married. I, I sometimes think of Paul. I'm like, sure, I could be a missionary. He's just living out there alone, you know, the bachelor doing his thing. James is a married man. And we know that being a a leader of the church, the most prominent church in the ancient world, comes with some dangers. And this was James walking through this with his family. We not only only know that he gave his his earthly life to this, but he also gave up his, his literal life. He died for this. We know he was martyred at the hands of Nero. And church, what changed in him? To take him from that to this, what changed in him? It was the resurrection of Jesus when he saw it. It changed his life and set his life on a different path. And by the way, one of the most, I believe, the most powerful proofs that Jesus was exactly who he said he was and did exactly what he said he would do is that his own flesh and blood brother would attest to it and then die for it. That, to me, it just shakes me to think about that, that James went from unbelief to a radically committed follower of Jesus into his mission in a moment in a moment, because he saw Jesus resurrected, because the truth is that everything we have, everything we believe in, everything we hope for is hinged on Jesus and his resurrection. Paul says it like this. He continues uh, on down. Let's go to verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. All of this is in vain. All of this is in vain. What I'm doing is in vain. What you're doing is in vain. If Christ had not been resurrected, then we should call it quits. Now, Paul started by using the same word vain, unless you believed in vain. So, church, what does it mean for us to believe in vain? Well, um, believing in vain is having Christianity minus the resurrection. According to Paul, Your faith is in vain if Christ did not rise. That means Christianity minus the resurrection is believing in vain. It is attempting to go through the religious motions of Christianity without a hinge. It's attempting to go through all of the do's and the don'ts and the religious motions without a hinge. And Paul says, your faith, if that's you, your faith is in vain. We preach in vain. We do all of this in vain, if that is you. He continues on in verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. He's talking about himself. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. But hear this in 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people 
most to be pitied. If Christ did not raise, then our faith is pointless in church that we are still dead, completely dead in our sins. Everything hangs on this. It says we are to be pitied among all people. If Christ did not raise, our faith is as pointless as an unhinged door. It's pointless if he did not raise. There's a book that I love. It's called A Reason for God by uh, Timothy Keller. If you haven't read this book, it's a worthy read, great book. Uh, He says it like this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That is a powerful, powerful quote. It all hinges, it all hangs on the resurrection of Christ. And let's continue, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul says, death, sin came through one man. It has been passed from generation to generation to generation, and we are all participants in that. But the same way that that came through one man, life and resurrection came through one man. And through that one man, we are made alive for eternity. So with that in mind, I want to ask a very practical question. Before walking into this room, how many have heard the Easter story? Show of hands. Before walking into this room, you have heard it. Now, I didn't say you necessarily have to, you know, you might not buy all of it, whatever. But you've heard it before you walked into this room. I want to propose something. I don't believe that we have a lack of knowledge problem. I don't believe we have a lack of knowledge problem at all. In fact, Easter is one of, it is the highest attended uh, church service of the year, meaning people who don't, are not connected with the family of God at all, uh, they'll come on Easter and chances are they're going to hear this message. They're going to hear the resurrection message. So most of our community has, in fact, heard this. It is a well-documented, well-attested historical event. Uh, It's a story that has stood the test of time. It stood the test of scrutiny. The History Channel loves to put out documentaries trying to disprove it. Any of you seen these? They try to discredit the resurrection, but it's really hard to believe them, just in all honesty, because it's like right after the Sasquatch then it's the resurrection, then it's like aliens. So they kind of discredit themselves in that. But every attempt, every attempt to disprove, discredit this has fallen short. And here we are over 2,000 years later, standing on this one event. We have heard the story. I don't think that we have a lack of knowledge problem. Here's what I think. I think, like Paul said, we have a believing in vain problem. We have a believing in vain, and here's what I mean by this. The question for us this morning is not, do you know about the resurrection? The question is, do you truly believe it and understand why it matters? That's the question for us. 
Do you understand why it matters? Do you understand why it is our hinge? That's the question for us. Uh, We believe in vain. We come unhinged when we take the ideas, the teachings of Jesus, and we separate it from his work on the cross and his resurrection um, without believing or acknowledging that. And here's what it looks like. When we strip the miraculous death and resurrection of Christ from our belief as Christians, what are we left with? We are left with a set of of rules, um, good morals, uh, life uh, suggestions. We're left with legalism. That's what we're left with when you strip this out of it. Um, In other words, our good news is downgraded to good advice. Our good news has been downgraded to good advice. And church, hear me, it doesn't work. It does not work. Uh, First of all, you know this, but I'm just going to say what you already know. You can't live up to those standards. And if you don't believe me, grab your Bible after you leave today, open to Matthew 5, and I want you to try to live out what Matthew 5, just Matthew 5 says for a whole week. You won't be able to do it. Those standards are too high. We will fall short. Good morals, doing good things, they never saved anyone. They've never saved anyone. And in the good advice system, we will always fall short. Now hear me, good advice is not bad, right? It's not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with good advice. Uh, But church, good advice does not take the place of good news. It's different, right? When you receive good advice, I mean, it's good. It's wanted. I always love to receive good advice. But it's different than when someone tells me good news, right? The world does not just need good advice. Or if you go to a bookstore or you look online, you see countless articles written of good advice. They don't need more good advice. They need good news. They need good news. And so the question is, why? Going back to our question, why? Why does this matter? Why um, Why does it all hinge on the resurrection of Jesus? Why? I want to set before you three things. Uh, Real briefly, three things. This will, and when I say this, the resurrection of Jesus will change the way you view life. That's number one. We look at James. His entire life's direction was altered by this moment. It wasn't that his belief system changed. That wasn't it. It was that his entire life changed. In this moment, the good news of the resurrection is transforming. One of the most prominent themes of the book of James that we're going to look at is true faith works. True faith does, right? True faith does, but it starts at the resurrection and that those who know Jesus crucified and resurrection will then, by their nature, live differently Walk differently, view the world differently, make decisions differently. It'll change the way you make decisions about your career, about your family. This will mark you as a follower of Jesus. It'll change the way you respond to trials, the way that you respond to things in your relationships. It will change you. And so the question is, has the resurrection of Jesus made an impact in your life? 
Has it changed your life? Has it changed anything? And again, the point of me saying this is not to say that we need to do good things or accomplish things to gain any standing or favor with God. That is not what I'm saying. That is not what I'm saying. Uh, You are saved because of what Jesus has done, not because of what you ever have done or what you ever will do. When when God looks at you, he sees, as as a child of God, God looks at you and sees the finished and completed work of Jesus, period. But what this means is that God has called you, saved you, set you apart, and prepared good works in advance for you to accomplish. Good works for you to accomplish in your workplace, in your family, in your community, in your school, in your neighborhood, and in your church. Good works have been prepared for you as a follower of Jesus. And the resurrection changes the way we view our lives. It not only changes that, though. It changes the way we view death. It changes the way that we view death. How many have been to a funeral of someone who was a self-proclaimed non-follower of Jesus, uh, an anti-religious kind of person. Um, Somber is a good word for everyone that I've gone to. Um, I'll never forget a funeral I went to. It was was a couple years ago. Uh, And it was a a father, it was a young father who had passed away, leaving behind a wife and I believe two kids. Uh, The wife and the children were followers of Jesus. They were involved in the church. They loved, they were all in. Uh, The husband, though, was adamantly opposed to, to everything. He was adamantly opposed to it. He would not step foot into a church. He would not um, listen to it. He died suddenly. It was unexpected, uh, and he died. And I remember, and after his death, there was no real evidence that, that things have changed. And obviously, God is sovereign. We don't know, but there was no evidence of it. And so in this room, I remember uh, the sadness was thick, in this room. I was tasked with leading the people that were there uh, singing Amazing Grace. And I remember, I will never forget this moment. I stood up, I walked up, and it was, you heard sniffles, and it was, it was just thick. You can feel it in the room. And as soon as I started, it was just weeping that happened in this room. It was just tears. It was sobbing. You couldn't hear the melody of the song over it. It was, it was a moment I will never, ever, ever forget. Now, how many, let's contrast that, have been to a funeral of someone who was a joyous, radically committed follower of Jesus? The mood is different, to say the least. The mood is different. The entire environment Change. There's, there's tears. There is weeping because that person is going to be missed. Yes. There's something different about it. There's a joy in it in the midst of it. Uh, I went to, to one that turned into this like full-blown worship service. That's weird and awesome. That is just so cool because we approach death differently. We approach death differently. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, I want to read this to you. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, 
that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. But listen to this. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. How, church, how do we look at death differently? How do we look at death differently than the world? It's because, as Paul says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, it changes everything. If you're a follower of Jesus, you do not need to fear death. You do not need to fear death, even death. You can approach with confidence because Jesus conquered death. And through him, we have been given victory over it. The resurrection changes the way we face death. Not only that, it changes the way we face and we view eternity. Uh, I'm going to be honest. I miss this a lot. Uh, I miss this a lot because the resurrection of Christ matters. Because it is through the resurrection that, hear me, I will one day be resurrected. I don't think about this a lot. I'm not talking about a mystical, magical resurrection. I'm not talking about like the ghost's spooky kind of we're out of the body kind of moment. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a literal, actual resurrection. A literal, actual resurrection. It was not mystical when my Savior resurrected, and it's not mystical when I resurrect. It is actual, it is literal, um, that death is not the end. Death is not the end, that at your final breath, because of the work of Jesus, you will then breathe again. Uh, I, I love this band. It, their name is Gunger. A long time ago, they, they wrote a song about the resurrection. They express it like this. This is not the end. This is not the end of us. We will open our eyes wide, wider. This is not our last, this is not our last breath. We will open our mouths wide, wider. In church, death is not our end because Christ has risen from the dead and through him we will be resurrected with him. This is our hope. This is what we, as Paul said at the beginning, stand on. This is our hope. This is our hinge, that it all hinges on this. And if we don't have this, we're like a broken door with no hinge. We're, as Paul says, useless, uh, in vain, pointless, just like a door without hinges. We are pointless. Our faith hinges on this. Uh, Our church hinges on this. The book that we are about to dig into together in James hinges on this. More than that, the life of James himself hinged on this. And so the question is, do we hinge on this this morning? The reality is that we, we not only celebrate the moment that Jesus resurrected, but we celebrate the moment through his resurre- resurrection that changed everything. That all of human history before it pointed to it and that all of human history after it has pointed back to it. It is the moment of which all time, all humanity hinges on. 
And so the question is, do we hinge on it this morning? And I think this brings us to an absolutely perfect moment to celebrate communion together.